This is episode 32 of the weekly eye-catching words podcast, published on the 11th of July 2023. Hello, my name is Justin Dix and this is the Eye-Catching Words podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've listened before, welcome back. This week, the Woke Gold Bloke from Woking will be taking the usual look back at the world as it is, followed by feature items about weddings and a trip to Jerusalem in 2011. So pin back your luggles, pop in your earbuds and pay attention in class. So let's take a look back at last week. I had a lesson in the poor state of the UK's electric car charging infrastructure. A two-night trip to Yorkshire was characterised, or should I say dominated, by significant issues with finding charging points that worked. I've now discovered that one supplier, Genie Point, not only fails to work with our MG ZS, but actually causes its battery to shut down for about half an hour, presumably as a security or safety precaution. This happened on not one, but two occasions. Instavolt, by contrast, seemed to be fast and reliable, but the main issue is that if chargers aren't working or are busy, you are, as they say, scuppered, or a less polite word beginning with F. The other thing of note is that the very good range of our car, around 300 miles when it's just the two of us, declines dramatically when you have four people and luggage and the aircon is going full tilt because of the very hot weather. In our case, it went to less than 200 miles, which wasn't enough to get us back home. We had to be rescued by a very helpful RAC man who escorted us via a secret back door out of Watford Gap Services to a charging station in Daventry. We're heading for a serious problem, if this isn't sorted quickly. It was another crazy week in the history of the world. The standout moment of right-wing spite, for me, was when Robert Jenrick ordered the welcoming Disney murals in a child refugee centre to be painted over, as he decided they were too welcoming. These guys are seriously crazy. Does he really think children flee to the UK because they're tourists? Those familiar cartoon figures and bright colours could have contributed something positive to a child's mental health during the darkest days of their journey through life, and at a time when they're most vulnerable. Finally, the last French survivor of the Normandy landings died this week at the age of 102. He left us with the following statement, which I think is worth repeating. War is a misery. Not all that long ago, and perhaps you find this silly, but I would think perhaps I killed a young lad, perhaps I orphaned children, perhaps I widowed a woman or made a mother cry. I didn't want that. I'm not a bad man. You kill a man who's done nothing to you. That's war and you do it for your country. Wisdom of the ages. But we weren't listening then, and we're not listening still. Perhaps we never will. I went to a wedding last week. It was lovely, one of the best I've ever been to. But it made me think about those nuptial rituals and the strange impact that this particular type of celebration can have on your psyche and indeed your body. 
I always think that the primary duty of a wedding guest is to recognise that the day is not about them, even if they have invested heavily in terms of clothes, travel and accommodation. The only pass-fail criteria for the day is, are the happy couple happy? If the food is lukewarm, the fizz flat and the disco geriatric, it doesn't matter. Big it up and do your bit to send them to bed with a smile. On this occasion, everything was rather wonderful, so it didn't matter. You do need to arrive looking good and feeling in good shape. I had scrubbed up well, as they say, and was complimented on my double-breasted taupe suit from Moss Bros with maroon t-shirt and matching sneakers from Skechers. Unfortunately, the taxi service that was supposed to be picking us and several other people up from our B&B had a logistical fail. So we ended up running late and crammed into various cars and then got lost in the twisting roads of the Yorkshire Dales. I fell out of the car on arrival with a face whose hue did definitely not work with my sartorial colour scheme. And it took me a good half hour of fresh air and a diet coke to get what passes for my non-nauseous mojo back. Fortunately, by the time we got to the ceremony itself, I was in good shape. The officiating registrars were, as usual, clear and concise, and passed quickly over the does anyone know of any just impediment bit, just in case anyone was feeling stupid enough for a bad joke. The whole thing went without a hitch. Although I did Google wedding rituals afterwards, here is a long list of the things you can do when you get hitched. Take it away, Tyler. Exchange vows. Exchange rings. Light candles. Pour sand into a jar. Tie your hands together, literally tying the knot. Pour salt. Break a glass. Get the congregation to warm up your rings. Pass around a length of rope. Seal a bottle of wine in a box. Place sealed love letters in a box. Bless some bread. Make an oath on a stone. Plant a tree. Exchange roses. Drink from a loving cup together. Pass a scarf through the center of a stone sundial. Bury a time capsule. Do shots. Jump the broom. Cut a log in half with a two-handled saw. And finally, ring a bell. Some of that list will seem familiar, but some of it won't. Obviously, we're used to seeing people exchanging vows and rings. But pouring sand into a jar, well, apparently that's supposed to symbolize the mixing of your two lives together. Tying your hands together is where the phrase tying the knot comes from. The only problem with that in this day and age is it feels a little bit bondage, tying yourself together in front of a whole bunch of friends and family. I mean, I'm not saying you'd have to use leather, but you know what I mean. Uh, breaking a glass is something you do at Jewish weddings. Some of these things are just a little bit too modern and middle class for me, like sealing a bottle of wine in a box and then reopening it on your 10th wedding anniversary or whatever. Anyway, the wedding breakfast was in another part of the hotel with a ballroom, a bar and a view of the spacious gardens. The main course was excellent, the wine vegan, and the pudding, the vegan pudding, was to die for, seriously good. Now, one thing you do need to enjoy at a full-on wedding is stamina, not something I'm good at, particularly as I get older. However, the groom's mother set a high bar in this respect. She was well into her 80s, but she kept going on the dance floor right into the evening, and the core of her diet seemed to be whiskey and cigarettes. 
five foot or less tall, she looked like she'd been forged in wartime and schooled in that strange blend of post-war grit and optimism that I recognised in members of my own family. I was cautioned before the wedding breakfast that she was something of a character, and it therefore came as no surprise when she heckled her own son during his speech. Now the speeches, of course, are the crux of any wedding. You hold your breath, waiting to see if they will be tedious, embarrassing, or shocking in a way that is likely to go viral on YouTube because of some indiscretion that should have stayed or locked away in the family histories. Again, all went well on this occasion. They were authentic, sincere, and unpolished. I hate slick wedding speeches. We're people, not performers, on a day like this. A bit of heckling aside, nothing untoward happened. I particularly enjoyed the bride's heartfelt poems and the moment during the best man's speech when an A1-sized reproduction of the bride and gloom was wheeled out on a flip chart stand with them dressed as Dorothy and the Tin Man from Wizard of Oz. The venue for this particular wedding was lovely. It was like a smaller version of the house in Brideshead revisited and had a lovely combination of spaciousness and intimacy. You could dip out for a comfy conservatory chair and have a conversation with friends, old and new, and then launch yourself back onto the dance floor. I half expected Sebastian Flight to appear, clutching his teddy bear. The surroundings were that lovely. Being up north, it stayed light well into the evening, so time was not of the essence. In fact, halfway through the band, I wandered off down broad waterways with immaculate rowing boats moored midstream like floating follies, and I took a selfie for my publisher to use for the flyleaf of my next book, In My Dreams. I got my shoes muddy and had the kind of spiritual experience you have after too much food, fizz and a bit of boogieing. Now on the subject of boogieing, this wedding had a very good band, with most important of all, an excellent lead singer. I walked up slowly when they got going, trying to look cool, calm and collected. I am the ultimate dad dancer. In fact, I give dad dancers a bad name, so I try not to draw attention to myself. I slip on to the dance floor and start with a little toe tapping, swing the hips, gently move the arms, blend in with the crowd. Stay away from the high-powered octogenarians and cute little kids. Everyone goes, ah. Too. I then occupy the hidden in plain sight zone, near the edge of the dance floor, but far enough into the melee that you are inconspicuous, or as inconspicuous as you can be when you're six foot three inches tall. Not that any of this matters, as at some point your wife will come up to you and tell you that you're a terrible dancer, but she loves you anyway. In fact, strangely, it is one of the reasons she does love you. Now we thought this particular wedding would peter out at 10 o'clock once the band left and people had had a few more drinks. But they then opened up a nightclub space in the basement. And I mean it was small but it was absolutely like a nightclub with booths, bright coloured lighting, the whole piece. There were cocktails and there was a disco. The groom, a big music lover, led the DJing and the next three hours was a steady flow of danceable beats, which I dipped in and out of before finally giving in around midnight and going off to find a comfy chair in the hotel foyer. When our party from the B&B tipped into a minibus at one o'clock, the overall wedding still going strong, 
It was with a sense of relief on my part. I wasn't massively drunk, but I was definitely tired. Apparently they kept going on till two o'clock in the morning. Anyway, that was the first of our two weddings this year. Very, very good. Very, very sociable. The next one in September is in a posh Chelsea venue, so we won't have to travel so far. But now I think about it, I quite fancy renewing my vows with my soulmate and seeing how many rituals we could get into our ceremony. In 2011 we went to Jerusalem, starting with the old walled city itself. The soulmate and I went up to the Jaffa Gate. Now this is one of seven gates. The city gates are a history lesson all their own, with names as mundane as Dungate and as intriguing and prosaic as the Gate of Eternal Life. It's easy to forget how much of Jerusalem's history is neither Arab nor Jewish, but Ottoman. Suleiman the Magnificent, whose turban was the size of a prize pumpkin, built the current city walls in the mid-16th century, around the same time that King Henry VIII was on the throne in England. I suspect he set up the toll booths at the gates as a nice little earner. Anyway, once inside, we fought off the storeholders in the Christian quarter, who are quite assertive, and did some browsing until finding a little fabric shop that we liked the look of. We chose some material and did a little bartering, then went off for Turkish coffee whilst they turned the red and gold stripes into a three-metre table runner for us. It was at this point that I found out what makes Turkish coffee so distinctive in Israel. It's the cardamom, but Turkish coffee varies all over the Middle East. Uh, I had a long chat sitting in the back of the fabric shop with the guy who owned the place. Turned out he'd done the seat covers and cushions for the hotel we were staying in. We talked inevitably about what had been happening in the UK recently. At that time there had been riots and fires every night for several nights. He'd lived in London and Oxford so had more of an opinion than most people. Everyone we met had an opinion about the decline in Britain, but generally people were sad rather than gleeful. The Wailing Wall on the evening of the Sabbath was a remarkable sight a sea of Jewish people of all shapes, sizes, dress and denomination. Number two son went up and touched the wall, and was touched in return even though he is not, was not then and is not now a particularly religious person. Was it spiritual or was it vestigia or just an emotional connection with your origins? Who knows? But it did mean something to be in Jerusalem in his bar mitzvah year. Now one thing really stands out in Jerusalem, bread. Bread is legend. The biblical quotations are living, breathing fact, and bread is piled high everywhere you go. The smell of the stuff, along with the smell of fresh fruits and spices, is timeless and runs like a seam throughout the whole city. We took a walk around the top of the city wall in the blazing middle of the day sun at one point. Only mad dogs and Englishmen would do this, as they say. The original walls of the city go back beyond the present ones to at least 500 years before Christ. The Babylonians and the Romans both knocked them down, 
but so did an earthquake at one point. This is probably standard for walled cities the world over. They get knocked down, they get back up again. Later in the week, we drove down through the Judean desert and along the western shores of the Dead Sea to Ein Gedi, where there is a little treasure secreted between the salty water and the towering cliff faces. A series of waterfalls and rock pools that you can bathe in. Lots of animal life, including ibex and myrmosets. Temperatures went soaring. It was 47 degrees in the car once when we got back. It was certainly around 40 degrees when we went to the Dead Sea and did the obligatory floating on the surface thing. As I can't swim and have a pathological distrust of water that makes me sink, it was particularly important for me to do this. Even I can't sink in the Dead Sea. Coming back to Jerusalem, the desert looked incredible as we started to get the evening light. I can understand why people fall in love with this part of the world. Alas, I was driving, so I didn't have the chance to take any pictures. There were two army checkpoints on the way home. It felt a little tense everywhere, given the situation in Gaza at that time. Yad Vashem, the Memorial Museum of the Holocaust, is in Western Jerusalem. I can't really describe the experience of going there. The most important thing to know is that it is intensely personal. There were large artefacts, such as the side of a Dachau train carriage used to convey people to their murder, and small items such as toys, photographs and items of clothing, every single one of them real. Everything you saw was connected to the mass murder of Jews, gypsies, people deemed defective and people politically opposed to the Nazi regime. Something as seemingly impersonal as a lamppost from a concentration camp made me stop and stare and feel how awful the reality must have been. I also kept an eye on the people around me as well. So many of them looked so sombre and so shocked. One man was watching a film of the camps and obsessively rubbing his arm where the inmates were branded with their numbers. It was as if he was trying to psychologically erase the branding of people for death. The building itself is an incredible triangular conduit, I would guess some 20 metres high and very long. You walk through it, crisscrossing past the exhibits and video testimony from survivors. At the end, when I walked into the memorial hall, I burst into tears. I'm not even Jewish. You don't have to be. I just blubbed. As to the children's memorial, almost indescribable. Candles, mirrors and the softly recited names and ages of all those who were known to have died in the death camps create a sense of falling back into history, whilst at the same time hoping that the souls of those children were somehow lifted into a better place beyond this pain. The Holocaust started with ordinary, everyday wickedness and escalated into genocide. All I can think of now is how easy it is to be bad and how important it is to try and be good and do everything you can to make sure that in your own life bad things don't happen and that you don't contribute to this ever happening again. We also went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in the Christian quarter of the Old City during our visit. This is a Greek Orthodox Church of the most fantastic shape and scale. When we went, services were in full swing quite literally as the priests were swinging the incense orbs in a way that resembled a martial arts technique. 
Huge crowds of people were trying to get in and get close to the ceremonies. I didn't even try, but it was quite a sight. This is just a taste of a remarkable city which should be on your bucket list, whatever your politics or religion. Twelve years on, the current Israeli regime is toxic and right-wing, and Benjamin Netanyahu is up there, in my view, with Trump, Bolsonaro, Erdogan, Orban and others of similar right-wing ilk. But don't let that stop you. You're missing the point if you do. We need to understand other countries and cultures even when we want to scream at them. And the best way to do that is to visit and soak up the atmosphere for yourself. That's all from me for this week. I hope you have a great few days ahead and see you next time. Don't forget to check out my website at eyecatchingwords.blog and see what's new. In the meantime, here is my top tip for a happy week. The famous French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal said that most of our misery has come from our inability just to stop and sit down and think in a quiet room. And when you think of all the things that go on in the world to distract us today, including probably listening to this podcast, you can see the truth of that. So, this week, here's my challenge. Sit in a room on your own with no distractions for half an hour and just see where your mind takes you. Next week, I'm off to Lisbon and I hope that my podcast will consist entirely of conversations, sights and sounds. This week's play out is dedicated to Robert Jenrick and is from the Disney movie Mary Poppins. A spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun and snap the job's a game and every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake a lark a spree it's very clear to see that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down the medicine go down medicine go down just a spoonful Sugar helps the medicine go down in a most delightful way. A robin feathering his nest has very little time to rest while gathering his bits of twine and twig. Though quite intent in his pursuit, he has a merry tune to toot. He knows a song will move the job go down the medicine go down medicine go down just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in a most delightful way